Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. I was asked a question this week. What do you think the central message of the Bible is? And, uh, and I you know, was asked on the spot. We have a, a Wednesday lunchtime Bible study we're doing over at the Three Rivers Mall. Um, I've, I've never really hung out at the Three Rivers Mall before in my life, but I have to say, hanging out at the Three Rivers Mall with a few, you know, brothers reading the word together has, has been really, really quite fun. And so if any of you have like a lunch hour free on a Wednesday, we would love to have you join us in the food court. Uh, there's one option that's open. Uh, they have uh, shaved ice cream, uh, bubble tea, and microwave corn dogs. And so... Um, <laughs> So you might want to bring your own food, but it's, it's a really good time hanging out over there. Um, anyhow, the question came up. What do you think the central uh, message of the Bible is? And, and I had an answer on Wednesday, and I was going to say this is, my, this is my answer, but this is really a much better version of my answer because I've had time to think about it and write it down and, and all of that. But anyhow, my, my answer to that is I, I think the Bible claims that there's this creator God who is both eternal and relational in nature. That his nature is to be love, his nature is love, and that he's made humanity to, to partner with him in ruling over the created earth. And where we fall short in that calling, he's sacrificed himself. He crossed the line between divinity and humanity, and he, he bound himself relationally and experientially to every element of our fallenness, so that we might be bound to him relationally and experientially into his eternal and divine life. And I really think that this same God who's done all of this for us, that laid down his life so that we could know his eternal life, uh, that I really think he's inviting us to partner with him as, as he continues this redemptive work all across humanity and across the ages. When I was thinking about that question more this week and in answering that question, even writing down, I was honestly a little bit surprised at how important and central this idea of a healthy relationship that's defined by self-sacrificing and others-interested love, how important that's become and how I view the message and the claims of scriptures. I'd go as far as to say as well that that Jesus Christ really is the embodiment of these principles. And I think for many, many years of my life, if someone asked me what the central message of Scripture is, I'd be like, it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But when I try to define who Jesus is, he's the eternally relational God who has loved, come in the flesh to lay down his life for his people. Um, and so Jesus really is the embodiment of these principles that we're talking about. He's a full image of God. He's the template for how humanity is meant to be. If you want to understand who we're supposed to be as, as true humans, we want to look at Jesus Christ. And so in considering all of that, I, I feel like our January teaching series stuff was great. We got to hear from some missionaries. We got to hear from our leadership team on some different things, and, and that was great. But I'm really excited uh, in this next season, these next couple months of ministry. I'm excited to be getting back to 
just a little more traditional teaching time and back to the, the Gospel of John, uh, where we had, have been uh, sporadically over the last year. Uh, we're going to be going back to John chapter 6 this week, so I would encourage you to get out your Bibles or your Bible apps and get turned to John chapter 6. Um, and I just I want to start with a little bit of a reminder of what's going on, and, and I'm going to put a little bit of pressure on you. Does anyone remember what happened in John chapter 6? What was the event that set the scene for John chapter 6? And I'll give you a hint. It's not actually in John chapter 5. But does anyone remember the scene? What happened? There was a significant thing that happened to a relative of Jesus's. His name starts with a J and rhymes with Bon. John the Baptist. John the Baptist died, right? John the Baptist. That's a little insensitive. John the Baptist was beheaded. This is out of Mark chapter 14. And, and we read in Mark 14 that as soon as Jesus heard the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he left in a boat to go to a remote area all alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed, and they followed him on foot from many, many towns. And then Jesus saw this huge crowd as he stepped from the boat to the shore, and he had compassion on them, and he began to heal the sick. And so... Back in the fall, when we were talking about the book of John, we spent a week talking about this compassionate Savior who, who in this moment, we see really rallying in a low point in his life, a low point in his personal life, uh, in a moment when he's just thinking, all I need is just to get away and go be alone with the Father. We see him rallying to serve people. Uh, it's in this remote place where we have a super large crowd. Jesus has been ministering to them, and, and eventually, disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, these people are hungry. What are we going to do? And then we see a Savior who is rallying again, where he's been ministering and healing and, and teaching. He now goes even further, and he's like, no, we're not going to send them away to find food. We're going to feed them ourselves. And we have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. The crowd's response to this miracle is acknowledgement that Jesus may, in fact, just be the prophet that they've been waiting for. Their traditions told them that, that there's one who's foretold who would be a prophet like Moses, who's going to lead their people one day. And they begin to ask themselves as they're eating the bread that Jesus has multiplied for them, they're beginning to ask themselves with their full bellies, could this be the prophet like Moses? The line that you're supposed to connect there is, well, Moses fed the people with bread. And so there was this epiphany they had. Oh, this guy's feeding us just like Moses did. Could he be the prophet? Jesus' response to this was to, to get away because there's this momentum building within the crowd wanting to make Jesus their king and their ruler. And it's at this point that he escapes to the mountaintop to pray. Now, he's still up there praying, connecting with God on the mountaintop, when it's time for the boat to leave with the disciples to go back to the other side to Capernaum where they had been before. And the disciples end up leaving without Jesus, and this results in the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. He comes back down off the mountain at some time in the night, sees the boats already left, and just walks across the sea to his disciples. Then the next day, the crowds wake up, and they don't see Jesus anywhere around, and they know the only boat that had left was the one that left without him the day before, uh, but he's nowhere to be found. And so they're going, where is Jesus? Then, luckily, some boats show up on the shore, and so the crowds commandeer these boats and sail across the sea back to Capernaum to go and look for Jesus. When we think about 
the crowd waking up and being, where is Jesus? And then going off after him, you know, grabbing these boats and heading across the sea to check out where he's at. In my mind, I'm like, oh, this is kind of a cool thing. These people are hungry to find Jesus. They're not sure where he's at, but they're searching for him. This seems like a, a virtuous thing, uh, but we'll see if it really is. Uh, we're going to pick things up in John chapter 6, verse 25. 625 reads, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. When they asked Jesus the question, Rabbi, how did, how did you get over here? Do you think this was the answer they were expecting? I don't think so, right? Jesus didn't really answer their questions. And I think part of the reason he doesn't answer their questions is because they're, they're worried about the wrong things. They're asking the wrong questions. When did you get here? They're thinking about the boat that wasn't there. They're thinking about the last time they saw him, he'd gone up on the mountain. And now here he is across the sea in Capernaum, and it's a bit of a mystery for them. But Jesus doesn't answer their question. What does he say? He says, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. These people had spent a few days with Jesus. He's ministering. He's been healing the sick. And then he multiplies the loaves and fishes. They've witnessed some miracles. And yet there's something off in what they're looking for after having seen all of that. And I think what Jesus is really getting to with his question is their motives. He's highlighting the fickleness of their hearts. You know, one moment they want to make him king, right? He's, he's the guy. This is the prophet we've been waiting for. Let's have him in charge of everything. And then the next day, they're happy if he'll just be their cafeteria worker. They're happy if he'll just fill their bellies. They paddled across the sea, and I think Jesus can see it in them. They're no longer looking for a Messiah. They're just looking for a meal ticket. The hunger that they woke up with on Monday has wiped away the healings and the miracles and the experiences that they had on Sunday. I'm not saying that these events happened on a Sunday and Monday. I'm just trying to make you connect some of this to your own life. So Jesus calls out this motive. And I think it's because in real relationships, motives matter a lot. If I'm dealing in a, in a transactional relationship, we have lots of those in our society. If I'm ordering a burrito from Chipotle, I really don't care what motivates the worker behind the counter who's making my burrito. They could hate me. Well, they make my burrito, and it makes no difference to me as long as they don't spit in my food and I get a, a good burrito, right? But if I've invited you over to my house for dinner, then what I'm really looking for is to spend time with you, right? If the only reason that you're coming to my house, if I know somewhere in your heart the only motive you have is, all right, free dinner, then that's highlighting a problem in our relationship. Motives really matter in real relationships. I think Jesus is sensing this motive in the people that are looking for him in Capernaum. They're not here for him. They're just here for some more food. So he says to them, don't work for food. Here you are. You've gone to all the trouble to cross the lake and to find me because you're hoping for bread that's just going to spoil. He says, don't work for food that spoils. 
but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I really think what Jesus is trying to do is pull the crowd back into the reality of what God is doing here in their midst. He's saying, friends, consider your motives here. You're so preoccupied with your next meal, you're missing out on who it is that's right here before you. You came all this way looking for bread, but what about the big picture? The next meal you have is is maybe going to spoil if you don't eat it fast enough. If you eat it fast enough, you're going to be hungry sooner or later. He's saying to them, work for eternal food. Here in your midst is the Son of Man, the promised one, the Messiah. He's the one that God has chosen and appointed to lead his people into an eternal kingdom that knows no end. He's the one who's been appointed by God to feed his people eternal food that's lasting, food that doesn't spoil. The crowd's getting it a little bit, partly because they have the cultural and the historical background to understand the direction that Jesus is trying to point them. They're getting it a little bit. Verse 28, they ask him, what must we do? To do the works of God. This whole idea of food that doesn't spoil sounds pretty darn good to this crowd. Jesus says, oh, this, yeah, their understanding is he's saying work for food that lasts. So they're like, okay, what kind of work? We're ready to do it. They've been religiously conditioned by rituals and commands. They really just want to know, okay, what's the box we need to check to get this? Because we are ready to check that box. I really think that whenever we're looking for a box to check, In our relationship with someone, in our relationship with God, we're probably fueled by wrong motives. We're probably asking the wrong questions if we're asking which box to check. Um, For those of you who are married, how well has that gone for you to just ask your spouse what they want you to do and then you just do it because they told you to? That, That works great, right? Just warm fuzzies all around that idea. No, we're looking for more than just doing the right thing when we're looking for real relationship. Because this is a relationship, because motives matter, Jesus is looking for more than people who will just do the right works. If you knew the only reason that someone was, I don't know, buying you a birthday present or doing something nice for you is because they're terribly anxious about whether you really like them or not, that really indicates that there's something wrong with this relationship. And I really think in many ways, checking religious boxes says a lot more about us and our inner securities than it ever says about how God actually looks at us. In scripture, the Lord's proclaimed to his people, I've loved you with an everlasting love. If you're asking what kind of work because you are motivated to feel better because you've checked the right box in terms of job duties, or if you're feeling justified at looking at someone else's boxes that are unchecked, you're approaching the whole thing wrong. You're asking the wrong questions. So the people say to him, what kind of work? And although they're asking the wrong questions, Jesus once again gives the right answer. In verse 29, Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Believe in the one he sent. Believe in me, Jesus is saying to the crowd. This question came up in our guys' Bible study this week, talking about this word believe. What does it mean? Is it describing this idea that we hold in our mind to be true? Think of the song that we just sang, and 
And there's all of these concepts of Christianity that we're supposed to agree with in our hearts are true. That I believe in God the Father. I believe in the Son. Uh, when they were rehearsing before the service, Tyler was forgetting to sing the last part of it. And Amber brought it up. And I just kind of interjected as a joke. Well, Tyler, I really don't want you to have to sing anything you don't believe. And so he began to walk through it, doctrine, by, you know, line by line. Okay, no, we, I think we're all okay with this. I think we're all we're good with this line. So he decided to sing it in the end. Thanks, Tyler. Um, but when the Bible talks about belief, is that what they're talking about? Ideas that we hold true in our minds? Is it more this idea of, of like a verb describing uh, something that we do or describing the motivation behind, behind actions that we take? I really think the word is hard to define for us because I think when Scripture uses it, it's describing the nature of our relationship with God. They say things, scriptures say things like believe in God, trust in God, talks about faith, right? And when we're talking about those things, I think it's, it's easy for us to put that, to divorce it from any kind of relational connotation and put it in our minds as facts versus fiction. I believe he died and rose again. I believe that's a fact about Jesus Christ, a person who lived approximately 2,000 years ago. And because I believe that's a fact, I'm now good, Right? I believe it's a fact. I'm good. I really think there's more to it than that. I think when Scripture talks about this, it's, it's attempting to help us understand the relational nature of our connection with God. And really, I think the paradigm from which we view and live out our relationship with God. When it says things like believe in God or trust in God, these are phrases that are meant to describe how you look at the one who created us all. How you look at God, how you relate at God. Is God good? Is God faithful? Is God, as the scriptures say, slow to anger and abounding in love? Do you live your life and your relationship based on a belief in who he is as revealed in scripture? Or is your relationship with God governed by your own appetites? what you feel like he's doing for you, what you feel like you can get from him? Is it governed by your own anxieties, these innate insecurities that we might feel about? Am I okay? Am I not okay? Do you live your life and your relationship with him based on how he's revealed in scriptures or your appetites and anxieties dictating how you relate to God? I imagine this crowd was challenged in their religious assumptions and probably feeling a little bit insecure because here they're trying to get the answer from Jesus. What do we need to do? What do we need to do? And he throws out this thing, believe in the one whom he sent. So they ask him, well, what sign are you going to give us that we can see it and then believe in you? What are you going to do to convince us that you really are who you said you are? Now, I don't know, but I would imagine that if the healings that he'd just done a day or two before, and the multiplying of loaves and fishes that he'd just done the day before, and however it was that he got from the mountaintop across the sea, if that's not going to convince the people, I don't know what is. And it's not because they have a problem with, in their heads, accepting facts about things. It's because there's a problem in this relationship with God. Somewhere in this picture, they don't really believe that God is who he's been revealed to be in Scripture. 
and they're looking for something a little bit different. They say to him, what sign are you going to give us? What are you going to do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're demanding a sign from Jesus, and they're saying to him, all right, we think you might be the prophet who leads like Moses. We've got a test for you. You know, Moses gave the people bread to eat every day in the wilderness. And for them, this is a part of their cultural heritage, right? We're the people who spent 40 years living in the wilderness on the daily bread that Moses provided. 40 years in the wilderness. Not one person starved to death. This is, this is a flat-out miracle in the ancient world. I mean, I think we live in a society that food is so abundant, we forget that for most of humanity's history, figuring out how to feed everybody has been a real, real problem. We're trying to figure out how to keep everybody let, uh, not overfed. Um, we're unique in our place in history. This is interesting because as I hear them saying this and talking about Moses and wanting manna and talking about this history that they have, I, I wonder if there's just a little bit of romanticism in their view of history in their 40 years in the wilderness. I wonder if maybe Moses has even been deified just a little bit. I mean, it, it, you, and you see this, like most of the time that Moses was leading, what were the people doing? Complaining, right? They didn't like him. They didn't want him to rule over them. They didn't think he was a good leader until a thousand years later. <laughs> Just like, man, this guy. I mean, the people who actually followed him were like, this guy is the worst. Even his own brother and sister thought he was the worst at one time. Um, and and this, is, this, is, this is part of just our human nature, right? We'll look at the way things were and romanticize it a little bit. And so they're going, yeah, he fed us for 40 years in the wilderness. No one missed a meal for 40 years in the wilderness. They've forgotten why they spent 40 years in the wilderness, haven't they? They've forgotten that the plan was, I'm going to take you out of Egypt and I'm going to send you into a land filled with milk and honey. And 40 years in the wilderness, eating your daily bread might sound pretty good to somebody starving to death somewhere else. But when you compare it to what God's plan was for them, it's a poor, poor substitute. And the reason that they spent 40 years in the wilderness was because they didn't believe in who God was. God takes them out of slavery. He's, he's going before them, pillar of fire at night, a cloud by day. His glory's filling their camp. And he's like, we're going together to this promised land, and I'm going to fight your battles for you. And when they get to the edge of the promised land, and they send the spies in, they see the giants, and they see trouble everywhere, and they're like, I don't know that I really believe that you are going to do what you say you do. And so instead of walking with God into the promised land, they refuse to go. So God's like, all right, we're going back out to the desert then. We're not going into the promised land. You guys are going to spend the rest of your lives out here in the desert. And some people are like, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds worse than the promised land. i got to figure out where the food's going to come from every day. And I don't really believe that you're going to feed us every day. I'm extrapolating a little bit here. And so they decide they're going to go without God into the promised land and take it themselves. That doesn't go so well. They think the manna is so great. They think these 40 years of being fed is so great, but it's not. It's not what God had for them. Jesus says to them, very truly, I tell you, remind them of a couple things. One, 
It is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You think man is so great? God is doing something greater than that right now. He's doing something far grander than keeping a few rebellious Israelites alive in the desert for 40 years so they can have another generation who can finally go in and do what they were supposed to do. He sent down something better than the bread that dusted the earth every morning. And the challenge that's being put out to these people is to recognize who it is who's before them and to enter into a faithful, believing, covenant relationship with their creator, God, who says, I'm here and I'm here to save you from your sins. I really think that same challenge is put out to us today. Can you believe that God, sorry, can you believe in God? Can you believe in who he's declared to be in scripture? Can you believe that what he is doing today is something new and something wonderful and something that is leading you to a promised land? Or are you still living out of yesterday's bread of fear, unwillingness to walk in the truth that he's created for you? Are you settling for the bread when you could be shooting for the milk and the honey? Lactose intolerance aside. I really, really believe that God has so much more. Thanks. Thanks. Way to follow instructions. I really believe that God has so much more for us than we're experiencing. And that in many ways, our life here on earth in a broken world does reflect uh, life in the wilderness for the nation of Israel. In many ways, we are asking God for daily bread. But we also believe that in Jesus Christ, there's a fulfillment that's happened. And that as people are invited by the Spirit to live in the reality of a land flowing with milk and honey. And it'll probably never be heaven here on earth until Christ returns and restores all things. But I think as people who are invited to believe in Him, we're invited to embrace that reality. So when you look at God, what do you see?